Welcome to Ethics in Open Source, a new podcast. This is kind of episode zero, but what is it going to be about? I'm firstly going to hand over to the first of the people involved who will be involved in this, this podcast, Astrid uh, County, you came up with, just before we went to, to air, you came up with a really nice summary of what it's going to be about. So maybe you could just share that with us. Sure. Thanks, Chris. Uh, so this podcast is going to be a place for anyone who has interest in the overlap of ethics and technology. And the reason why we kind of kept it high level is because as we were trying to figure out what persons that would be and tried to give them names that didn't really work out because there's so many names. And so this could be anyone who maybe works in technology, builds technology, but it could also be people who research technology, maybe research things like privacy and security around technology, but anyone who has um, any interest around how ethics and technology overlap, and especially in the realm of open source. Okay. And whilst we have you on the mic, maybe just a quick general introduction to yourself. Sure. Um, I'm Astrid County. I am trained as an anthropologist, but I also build technology and work as a chief of staff at a biotechnology company called Semvita Factory. Um, I have a really big interest in wanting to better understand how to create technology that can do good in the world. And some of my social science background really informs some of the questions I ask, which is, you know, when you build things, what could happen with those things? And we'll have some follow-up questions for each of the people on this call soon. Let's just continue with general introductions first. So Coraline Ada Emke, what about you? I'm probably best known as the inventor of codeofconduct.markdown. Um, I'm the author of the Contributor Covenant, which is the first and most popular code of conduct for open source communities. Um, and I, for a long time, focused kind of inwardly on open source um, about the community aspects, about governance, and all of those things are super important. And I think taking them to their natural conclusion brings us to the point where we have to think about how our software is being used in the world. And that has been something that, uh, that I'm very interested in and something I've, I've done a lot of work toward um, with the founding of the Ethical Source Movement and the Ethical Source Working Group. Um, I'm the author of the Hippocratic License, which is a, uh, uh, an open source license tied to human rights. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in the evolution of open source. I think uh, open source, of course, has been wildly successful over the 20 years that it's existed. And we've ignored a lot of the impact of the work that we do. And we've ignored how we do that work, I think, for a very long time. So my goal with the ethical source movement and by extension with this podcast, is to get those conversations going and get conversations that lead to action. Um, we all have a role to play in the next wave of open source, and I would like that, that next wave to focus um, on an ethical framework moving forward um, because we have the potential for so much good in this space, and we need to think about how to prevent, how to incentivize positive pro-social behavior and open source and disincentivize things that cause other people harm. 
So that's kind of like my my mission here. Next up, Mike. Now, Mike and myself, you're not actually going to hear too much from moving forward. So we're going to be more back of house, but uh, we thought we would come on for this show anyway. So, Mike, how about you? What brings you here? Um, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a technologist and humanitarian aid worker. Uh, and so naturally, as, as someone that has uh, spent a lot of time around open source communities, but also spends a lot of time thinking about how uh, actions can, you know, inflict harm on, on people, um, naturally, I think a lot of Coraline's work uh, really brought me to the ethical source movement and also brought me onto this podcast, seeing if I can perhaps share uh, information of working within the aid sector and uh, potentially find good areas of overlap with the work we're doing here. And what about you, Chris? And I am Chris. Chris Ward, sometimes Chris Chinchilla in other places. It depends if you actually want to find me online or not. Go for the Chinchilla if you actually want to find me as opposed to about 20,000 other people. Um, I guess what it, what interested me in the topic uh, in the past, uh, and it's kind of evolving over time, was um, working with uh, mostly very technical people, developers, and figuring out that there was a lot of things around the impact of um, their their creations, their, their, their developments, their software on the world that they weren't considering. And I wanted to try and find ways to make them think about those. Uh, I started with a book that has somewhat been on pause, thanks to 2020. Um, and then we started discussing this idea. And it seemed like another interesting output for some of those ideas. So that kind of brings me to the podcast today. Okay. So we had some follow-up questions. We wanted to get a little bit more detail and I guess sort of set the, the um, maybe the, the agendas is a strong word, but it, it'll, it'll, it'll do um, for what each of us is, is, is thinking and looking to bring to the table moving forwards, especially with a topic like ethics, which can be broad as Astrid already alluded to. So we had some follow-up questions we wanted to pass to everybody. Um, some of us have already answered this ever so slightly in passing, but the first question I'd like to ask everybody is, when did you start to really pay attention to the issue of ethics in tech? And was there a particular catalyst? Astrid, how about we start with you? Sure. So prior to uh, the company I'm working at now, I used to work at a different company where we actually studied disinformation online in online communities. And I learned a lot about the ways in which our technologies are being utilized um, in ways we didn't expect. And by that, I mean one of the reasons why disinformation can flow as quickly as it does online is because it's built on top of technologies that were really meant to entice people to do things like for e-commerce. So a lot of the way our e-commerce websites work is, oh, you bought this, you must want to buy other things that are similar. So it tries to push those things to you through the machine learning algorithms. But when you start applying that to people's conversations or opinions, what you start doing is creating these really, really deep and, and oftentimes quite dangerous holes that people can get drug into without realizing it, where 
conspiracy theories will abound and where disinformation will abound because it's going to be the thing that gets commented on the most because it's going to easily be pushed in conversation. And I'm sure that we weren't thinking about this when we were building, you know, things like eBay or Amazon, where it was just about trying to get people to buy more things. But when we took that same technology and said, like, wouldn't it be great if we made social networks where people can can um, connect and communicate, we didn't think through all the ways that could turn into something um, that could become quite disastrous in the real world. Um, I also think there was a kind of naivete about how much the online world can affect people's real lives. Uh, I know for me as a kid, when I used to be online and go into chat rooms, it was kind of a separate world. It was like, this is another life. That's why you have screen names because you can build your own image. And it wasn't, you know, the two never had to meet unless you wanted them to. But now that the these technologies have become so ubiquitous, and even in parts of the world where people don't have computers, they have phones, it's made the things that we created uh, these platforms on, those algorithms are now a big part of how people get their news, how they figure out who they like and who they don't like and who they listen to and who they believe. And because we don't even have a really good understanding of why people will pursue the types of things that they do and, and what happens if they get kind of into a really bad place and how can we pull them out of that? We don't really have a good way to do that. Um, and we don't even have a full recognition that there is a community aspect to this, like how in the olden time, in the olden days of forums, you know, it was a community and you kind of felt a responsibility to one another. Now there's a lot of individualism online as well. You know, I have the right to do what I want to do and say what I want to say. And it doesn't matter if what I'm saying or doing could affect something or someone else negatively. That's their problem. Um, we kind of are in a really strange place because it's as though we created this sort of fake world that became a real world and nobody uh, took down the notes and the, of the rules of what we did. So it's really hard to figure out our way out of it. I think it's possible, uh, but it made me really start to think more deeply about what happens when you make things. It's, it's very, I liken it a lot to uh, Oppenheimer and, and his regret uh, with the technology that was used for the atom bomb. And I don't think that it's something I'm not trying to be like over dramatic about what's happening online in that regard, but I do think unchecked, it can get really, really disastrous. And we haven't done a good job of trying to even just understand or ask the question of what happens when we make these things, what happens if you take this technology and put it in a place we didn't expect. And, and that made me more interested in wanting to do more and learn more. Caroline, what about what about you? What was what made you start paying attention? Do many of the things that you've you've done, um, and was there one catalyst or a series of catalysts? I think uh, I think early on, um, kind of alluding to what Astrid was talking about, um, I've been on I've been on the internet since about 1993, and I experienced a lot of those same communities. Um, whether it was IRC or um, Usenet or even social mushes, 
there were so many forums and um, you could, again, like Esther said, you could invent your identity. And what we've seen over the past, uh, over the past, I would say 10 years is a consolidation or federation of identity. And I think that has encouraged the individualism that Astrid was talking about. And that has come at the cost of, of community norms and standards and the thought of contributing to a community. So really for me, um, I've always been interested in internet communities and open source, of course, is a federation of lots of different, lots of different communities that might be organized around projects or themes or broad technologies. But I don't see the same kind of community norms and community standards either being established or being followed. And so that that's what initially got me started with my code of conduct work. Um, in terms of the ethical source work, there was a very specific origin point for that. Um, there is a, a Latinx and Chicanx activist group called Mejente, and they have uh, they've been running a campaign for about a year now, around um, about two years. Uh, no tech for ICE. ICE, of course, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, one of the government agencies in the U.S. that's responsible for human human rights violations against um, asylum seekers and migrants at the border. And all of those abuses are very well documented. Um, Mahente tweeted a series of tweets about companies that had contracts with ICE, technology companies with contracts with ICE. And I saw... Um, I saw I saw that series of tweets, and lots of people saw that series of tweets, including a guy named Seth Vargo. Seth had previously worked at Chef. Um, Seth is a very active open source contributor, and when he saw Mahente's tweet about in Shanley via Shanley Kane, um, when he saw the tweet that came from Mahente and Shanley, he realized that work that he had done was actually being used in support of Chef's ICE contract. And he was horrified. So he pulled his code from GitHub and from RubyGems, which caused uh, a ripple effect through a lot, of, uh, a lot of build systems. A lot of people's software would not go anymore. And um, Chef intervened. And because he had written that open source um, pro those open source projects while employed by Chef, they claimed intellectual property rights and the software was restored within a day. And that seemed to me like a huge failure on the part of our open source institutions because they were put in a position where due to open source's reliance on intellectual property laws as a foundational structure, they had to side with the human rights abusers. And that's like a fundamental freedom zero side effect. And when I saw that, I knew that something had to change. And that's when I released the, the first version of the Hippocratic License and a month later started the ethical source movement. So it was really, uh, I really owe the origin of this entire movement to Mahente. And they were the inspiration, and we continue um, collaborating on ways to bring that discussion around how technology is being used 
to commit human rights violations um, to the forefront and not only bring those conversations up, but also create tools whereby technologists can better govern um, the use of their software and grow an ethical standpoint from the inside out. I do believe as well that I think there was an entire episode on changelog or something about that chef incident. I feel like I heard a detailed discussion of it somewhere. I can't exactly remember where. I'm not sure if you know. Do you do you know? Do you hear that or um no, a lot of my information uh came from other sources. Okay. Maybe maybe it was something else. I feel like I have heard it somewhere though. I can't remember where. And Mike, what about you? What was it that really made you pay attention to to the issues we're discussing and was there one catalyst or many small ones along the way? Um, I mean, I would say, you know, growing up, like throughout my time in university and early career, I, I was certainly uh, involved with a lot of the open source movement. And, uh, you know, like many people, I ascribe to this idea that technology, like by opening it up, you're, you're naturally liberating people. Um, I would, you know, and I would think about that and participate in a lot of online discussion around what that meant for us. But I would, I would say it was when I began working in the humanitarian aid sector specifically and doing field work and building software to be used uh, in the context of vulnerable populations that really many of the, the problems of software being built in the modern day became really apparent to me. Um, specifically was when I first started working in the aid sector, I was based in Jordan working with Syrian refugees and uh, building technology to help refugees find employment. Um, And a big part of that project was this sort of new trend that I've been seeing more and more around using artificial intelligence for, for job matching, right? For finding people that jobs that suit them well. Uh, And so I worked with a number of researchers who were, you know, trained in econometrics and data science and stuff like that. Uh, But there was a massive, in my opinion, a a very, very large potential for harm. You know, you're working with vulnerable people and usually exploitive markets. And, you know, you're, you're trying to automate that to automate the vulnerable people into exploitive markets, like more efficiently. Um, And there's very little thought uh, that goes into that. And in the context of humanitarian aid, where do no harm is a, a core principle of every humanitarian aid organization, it's it's like a part of the definition. And to see uh, a lot of these principles being thrown out the window because now it's abstracted by technology and because the machine is doing it, we don't need to worry about it so much. You know, uh, in, in going back and looking at consumer technology and a lot of these same sort of feelings being shown by many, many people, um, you know, I think it became more apparent that there, there's a fundamental flaw in, in how technology is, is used as a way of abstracting um, this sort of exploitation, oftentimes done by, you know, companies or governments or, you know, sometimes even NGOs, right? Um, and so how, that, how that's used in, in finding ways to uh, organize people to, you know, prevent that and to 
figure out if there is a way that you can actually build technology that is liberating and how to do that um, is really what got me interested in, in this movement and yeah, it brought me here. Mike, um, I like what you said about um, humanitarian work, the fundamental tenet being do no harm. And that reminds me of a conversation that Astrid and I had a few weeks ago. Astrid, what you were talking about with us, uh, with the, uh, social sciences and some of the ethical constraints around social science, I think would be really interesting to hear about. Sure. So just so I can bring it to speed, Mike, Coraline and I were having a discussion about um, whenever there's some opposition to ethical open source, as though it's an imposition or something that's going to get in the way of freedom. And I was telling her that as a person who's trained as a social scientist, it's just it's just baked into doing research. Anytime you do work with people, you have to think about ethics. It's not even a question of is this um, a good idea or is this going to get in the way of my project. It's it's not even a question that you get to ask in that regard. You have to think about ethics because anything you do with people has the potential to cause harm, and for a lot of the different work I've done, especially like academic stuff, it's not even things that you would think you would need to kind of debrief people on. It's situations where you tell them, okay, I, I want to give you a survey or I want to give you, let you do this experiment and then you could tell me how you feel. But even then, we still have to go through a long debrief and make sure that if you've been harmed in any way, that you have access to resources so that you can get whatever help you may need. And then when I learned and became a technologist, it was just a very uh, abrupt kind of introduction to a world where large-scale extreme manipulation is happening and nobody is thinking about ethics at all. And then it comes up maybe after the fact or if something occurs. And then it's a discussion about like, well, how are you even supposed to do that? How can you really be a technologist and especially do anything open and think about ethics. And it just seems to me like almost like an ignorance of the point that you're working with people and it's your duty to ensure that whatever you're doing is not going to leave them in a state that's worse than how you found them. And that you still, even with all of that forethought, can't always predict what may happen as a result of your technological intervention. And so at the very least, you have a responsibility to make it possible for people who have been harmed to seek some sort of help, which is something else that it seems like doesn't get discussed or doesn't have a, a path when technologies are, are being created. And I think it's just, in a way, it's almost like we're being very adolescent or childlike in this sort of wonder, which is one of the the things that draws people in to being a technologist is that you get to come up with ideas and you can make them real. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I do think that when you get to the state of I'm ready to deploy this and put this out into the world, then you do need to start thinking about how what you've built could be utilized, even in a way that you didn't intend. And if it could harm people, what are you going to do about that? Because you did create this and there should be some sort of responsibility for the things that you create in the world. 
it doesn't mean that you're responsible for all the ways that people may use them. But to just put it out there and just say, well, I hope everybody's okay. That's not, that's not a way that any other group would think about their work. It's just history has taught us over and over again that when you do that, horrible things happen. And maybe because computer science is a younger discipline in that regard, that's a lesson that for some reason they don't believe they need to learn. But it's just an interesting world where you can build things that can affect so many people so quickly. And ethics and just even any type of forethought is not it's not a part of the process. And it just is for so many other things that it seems really crazy. And that, uh, I think it comes down to a couple of points. One is the widespread belief that technology is neutral. And, um, and that is such a poisonous idea and a related idea with freedom zero that there's something in, intrinsically morally positive about making your software available for any use at all without restriction. I think those two things, the intersection of those two things is a very dangerous place to be. It's an exciting place to be. It's a, it's a very liberating, enticing place to be. As Astrid was saying, the, the draw of being able to create something from nothing and have an impact is huge. But when you combine that with a refusal an outright refusal to consider the implications of the things that you're creating, let alone planning and trying to mitigate harm. Like we don't even get to the point of planning to mitigate harm. We just build it and put it out in the world and hopefully it'll turn us into millionaires. And that's the, uh, and that's the motivation. I think the other factor that, that gets in the way is meritocracy itself. The very, uh, the very institution that open source is built on, which is really nothing more than a reputation system. And it incentivizes certain kinds of behavior, which are not pro-social. Um, we focus very much on corporate adoptions and corporations, of course, don't want any restrictions. So we've, we've bent, we've created open source directly to be palatable to corporations. And that means leaving behind a lot of, our ethical and moral responsibilities because all we care about is adoption. And that's that's the incentive structure that we have in place right now. You get adoption, you get a reputation, you get a better job. And that's the cycle we fall into. It's been very interesting listening to you. <laughs> I almost have uh, nothing really much more to add. Um, I could give my own personal catalyst here. In fact, I was thinking at a time well, you were saying this, that mine would seem very um, mundane in comparison, but actually some of the things you just said almost kind of dovetail in from the opposite way, maybe more as um, a creator of sorts, especially one of them. There's been lots of little ones. I attended lots of uh, tech conferences as a journalist kind of just after the whole Cambridge Analytica period and there were obviously lots of talks around this subject, but I always felt like there was very little, um, very little telling people what to do. It was kind of always, here's a problem, but not very much like, what do you do about it? You jobbing designer, developer, project owner, etc. what do you actually do? And that was kind of something that frustrated me slightly. 
Um, one, one personal catalyst that goes actually back some time was when I used to work a lot on a, on a particular open source project and once um, had someone reach out to me for a, um, uh, a consultancy of sorts on how to implement it. And um, I met them because they had a very misleading name. And then when I mentioned the name of the company to my wife, she said, you do realize, A, they're uh, pro-life, um, which is not something I agreed with. And they actually tried to sue me when I was a student politician. <laughs> so I think it sort of, there's this aspect of something that a few of you have mentioned about sometimes you put something out there without ever thinking about what could happen. And that's not necessarily putting judgment on what could happen, but thinking about what could happen. And sometimes realizing that especially open source can be used by people you agree with and disagree with and not always realizing that until you realize it kind of thing. Um, and then the other one was actually something more recent. Uh, it wasn't an open source thing, but um, I think it really solidified in my mind how a lot of creators think about the act of creating and not the impact. And it actually was at one of the aforementioned tech conferences before um, he was uh, fired. I don't think he was arrested. But anyway, the ex- CEO of Cambridge Analytica did a talk at a conference I was at. Um, and it was frankly an amazing talk because he was extremely happy to tell you exactly what they did and how they did it and going into all sorts of crazy details and seemed in a kind of nerdy glee about what it did and, and how, how that what they did and almost just ignoring the impact of what some of those things were. And it was a fascinating talk for that reason, just really opened my mind to thinking, um, yeah, seeing how people can see it from the perspective of here's this cool thing I built, but not what, what implications it had. And that was probably another one of the ones that really was a catalyst for me of thinking uh, it is important to, to, to well, to, to try to make people think about those implications. Of course, there are some people who don't, who aren't bothered by it, but um, at least try to make people think more. Um, and then lots of little ones, but those are probably the two main ones, I guess. Um, and I want to really focus on practical um, things people could do on the projects they create and maintain, I guess. One of the frustrating things for me about this entire topic is that it's not new. Um, Post-World War II showed... Um, we saw a lot of scientists whose work had been used actually in both world wars, anything from chemical weapons to the atomic bomb. They saw, scientists saw the potential for harm in the, in the, uh, the technologies they were producing. And every other industry except computer science put in place ethical standards. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, atomic scientists who came together and put together the doomsday clock. Um, to this day, no lethal chemical weapons are produced in the United States by, uh, by formal agreement with chemical companies. So we saw all these other industries, all these other fields taking steps, and computer science didn't. In fact, most of our early development of computers was directly related to war efforts. And... A lot of even post-World War II, 
Um, a lot of the the research that was being done, I mean, Grace Hopper was a career military officer. And um, there was an early computer pioneer named Edmund Berkeley, whose work I've, I've studied quite a bit. And um, he actually worked with Grace Hopper. They were colleagues and at one point in time during World War II. And he was one of the people who did see um, the great potential for good that would come from computer technology, but also the great danger to the well-being of people of the world. And his voice was ignored. Um, he, uh, in 19, I think it was 1972, he actually, when he spoke at the uh, Association of Computing Machinery's anniversary dinner, um, he was the co-founder of that organization. And he actually called out audience members who were defense contractors and other people who were doing things that were morally shady or questionable or downright wrong with computers. He called them out by name. And Grace Hopper is one of the people that he called out, and she's one of the people that stood up and left the room rather than face his accusations. So this is not a new debate. It's just something that we've been ignoring as a profession for 70 years. Shoreline, even though it's it's not new, um, I also come from disciplines where these are lessons that we've learned over and over and over again, and we still make mistakes. So anthropologists, for instance, have a lot of their work was a big part of the eugenics movement and social Darwinism. And it was a perversion of trying to understand the biological um, evolution of humans and then trying to work with the state to make those uh, those new understandings a part of scientific knowledge, but in the midst of war, it became a way to try to create a human hierarchy. There is also a background of trying to determine like who's primitive and savage versus who's civilized. And then my undergraduate degree, which is in psychology, this, this is a continuous problem of people doing psychological experiments in ways that are unethical and then causing great harm. I remember being in, uh, I believe, like a social psychology class and learning about the Stanford prison experiment and thinking, who would ever do that? That's insane. Like, why would you just put something out there, don't ever test it, be the administrator of something where you have an obvious bias and then not wonder what could happen to students who are just participating and don't understand what you're trying to study. But then, like, to your point, Chris, about talking about Cambridge Analytica, like, that's not that different than that Stanford prison experiment. So even in, in these different disciplines that do have ethical guidelines, it's still something that gets breached over and over again. And so it actually really requires not just having the guidelines but having enough of a focus on maintaining them, on having, there's, there's boards and things like that that you can report people to, but even beyond that, it really takes a community to say, what are you doing? You can't just do that, um, because even when you do have standards, it gets breached over and over again. And that that's part of the reason that I'm so interested in the development of 
open and ethical source communities in places in the world other than Silicon Valley. I think that uh, that American individualism, that American exceptionalism is baked right into open source. And I would love to see what kind of work um, is being done in cultures where there are stronger community bonds and people do feel a stronger responsibility to the success of the group over the success of the individual. And that's something I'm, I'm very interested in. And uh, I'm hoping through the Ethical Source Working Group that we can help to foster and support those open source communities who do care about topics like this, who are community minded, who are more used to thinking about impact on other people as opposed to impact on one's reputation. I think that was a wonderful thought to end a lot of other wonderful thoughts. I hope that whetted your appetite to listen to more in the future and continue to subscribe to the feed and listen to discussions we'll have in the future with uh, lots of interesting people from this space and topics we've been discussing. You can find more on ethicsinopensource.com, including more details about all of us involved um, and what we're up to and also how to get in touch with us. So um, until next time, that's goodbye from all of us. Uh, and we hope that you will listen to us again soon. Take care, everybody. <laughs>